Romans chapter number 4. If you're able to, let's stand for the reading of the Word of God tonight. Romans chapter number 4. And we're going to read verse 1 down to verse number 15. And so if you have your Bibles open tonight, we're continuing. Uh, if you're visiting with us tonight, we started quite a ways back. Uh, I think this is my ninth message from the book of Romans. And uh, this is a great chapter. Chapter 4, as we begin that tonight, uh, this book is a tremendous treaty on uh, having the right standing with God. And uh, I want to be right with God. I want to make sure that I'm standing uh, the way God would have me to stand, and hopefully this message will help you. It's been a blessing to me as I've studied uh, throughout these last couple weeks for this particular message, and I've entitled it, Neither the Rights, notice R-I-T-E-S, the rights nor rules of religion can save. Neither the rights nor rules of religion can save. Anybody ever, anybody ever talk to you or accuse you of being a legalist? You know, there's, there's a lot of uh, folks that have just become very legalistic uh, in their approach to the Word of God and the Christian life. And we want to understand the scriptures. And so let's begin reading in verse 1 begins by saying this, what shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, notice without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? Now, are you familiar with Bible terminology? Let's just see, make sure everybody's understanding tonight before we read on. When the Bible oftentimes uses, especially here in the book of Romans, the word circumcision, who is it referring to? To the Jewish people. And so when it, when it uses the word uncircumcision, it's referring to who? Gentiles. Because you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. So notice again what he says here, blessed is the man to whom the Lord uh, will not impute sin, cometh this blessedness upon the circumcision only, upon the Jew only, or upon the Gentiles, or uncircumcision also. Okay, understand what he's saying here. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And we'll talk about that. For he received the sign of circumcision. Notice the wording here, a seal of the righteousness 
of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all that, of them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. That's the second time it's said that. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no what? Transgression. Now, listen, honestly, the Bible preaches itself right here in this passage. I mean, but we're going to go through it because we want to make sure we understand this. We want to get what God is saying to us in this tremendous chapter, Romans chapter number four. And let's have a word of prayer and we'll begin tonight. Lord, thank you again for the word of God, the clarity. Lord, I pray that you'd help me tonight to say only that which you once said Bless our hearing, Lord, may our hearts be open to receive it, that we might be a help not only to ourselves, but to those that we have an opportunity to talk to about you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Romans chapter 4. This is the great Bible chapter, listen to this, on salvation by faith alone. Salvation by faith alone. Uh, you think about that word there, alone. A lot of people claim to believe in salvation by faith, but it's not by faith alone. See, they believe by faith, but what they want to do is they want to add something to it. And if you're adding something to it, then what you're saying is what Jesus did when he died for the sins of the world was not enough. Something else needs to be done to add to what he already did. And of course, Jesus said himself as he hung on the cross, it is what? It's finished. To tell us die. Nothing else has to be done. Jesus has made salvation possible. The word alone Salvation by faith alone. That was the great divider during a period known as the Reformation. Now, the Reformation dealt with what we would categorize, and people do this to us all the time as Bible-believing Christians is, they want to lump us in with a group of people called Protestants. Can I tell you that Bible-believing Christians, Baptists especially, are not Protestants, because to be a Protestant means that you, at one time you were a part of the Catholic Church. We never came out of the Catholic Church. The church that we're a part of began with Jesus Christ himself. This is his church. Now again, we understand that there were those that were a part of that. 
that came out of that. Why? Because they understood, like Luther understood, the word by faith sola, faith alone. And you look at those, and I, I have, still have many family members that, that hold to the Catholic way of life. I'm not picking on them tonight, but I'm going to use them as an example to go right along with Romans chapter number 4. See, Catholics believe in salvation by faith, but they don't believe it's by faith alone. The Catholic believes in the value of the blood of Christ, but not in the blood alone. They accept that Jesus, or that Christ, is the mediator between God and man, but not the mediator alone. You see, they pray to Mary, the, the saints. It's not just Jesus. He acknowledges, listen, to some degree the authority of the scriptures, but their authority, they say, is not alone. They, they hold to the teachings of the Catholic Church, what the Pope has to say. What are they doing? They're adding to, or in some places, giving superiority to the teachings of a man-made church. In Romans chapter number 4, what Paul is doing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he's demonstrating that salvation is by faith alone. It's apart from any work or any merit of mankind. And so he does this by calling a very faithful and a very well-known witness by the name of Abraham. That's interesting how God allows Abraham to kind of step forward into this chapter, in this scene. And I want you to see a few things about him. And we'll start tonight. We'll pick it up next Sunday evening. But notice, first of all, Abraham's righteousness. Now, tonight's message will probably be a little bit more teaching than preaching. There's some things, terminology and so on here we've got to get a hold of. And uh, again, we're not, we're not arming ourselves with a bunch of ammunition so we can go shoot people down. We're just trying to understand the Word of God so that we can help people to understand that, listen, Jesus paid it all. Now, we don't have to add anything to what he did. They just need to understand God loves them. They're a sinner. Christ died for them. And by faith, they can, they can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So when you look at Abraham, and you think about Abraham's righteousness... Well, notice letter A here, and I've got a lot of questions here tonight. We find them in Romans chapter 4. Here's the first question tonight. How was Abraham saved? How was he saved? Well, if you look at it, was he saved by keeping the law? Well, if you look in the Bible, the answer is found both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Notice a couple of verses here, Genesis 15, 6. He believed in the Lord. Do you see it? He believed in the Lord. How'd you get saved? You believed in the Lord. And the Bible says it was counted unto him for what? For righteousness. So when we, look, when we talk about Abraham's righteousness, when we talk about you and I, our righteousness is as filthy rags. We have nothing to glory of. So when we say Abraham's righteousness, the reason that Abraham is viewed by God as being righteous is because of what Jesus did for him and what he did for us. And the Bible says he believed in the Lord. Look in the New Testament there, and you know it's Galatians 3 and verse 6. 
even as Abraham believed who? He believed God. And it was accounted to him, here it is again, for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee, in Abraham, shall all nations, all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith, they which be of faith, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Do you get it tonight? See, this man believed. Look back in our chapter here, Romans chapter 4, look at verse 3. What does it say? For what saith the scripture? That, that ought to be our rule. What does the Bible have to say? Well, here's what it says. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, when you say the statement that, is, that is, we've said a couple times tonight, that he believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Another word we could use, Bible word, when you talk about that is the word justification. It's synonymous with salvation. So when we think about justification, I've given you in your notes tonight, there are two elements when it comes to justification. It's important that we get these. Because if we are to be justified by God, these two elements need to be there in our lives. Notice the first one is there needs to be the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin, the removal of its guilt. Forgiveness is not based solely on the kindness and the goodness of God's heart. Forgiveness is based on his demand for righteousness or even holiness that it is being met by the sacrifice of his son. We use a Bible word to describe what I just said to you, and that is the word propitiation. That's a word God uses in other words, Jesus, only Jesus, no bull, no goat could ever satisfy the just demands of a holy God. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, can take away the sins of the world. See, forgiveness, what is it? It's the termination of the moral anger and resentment of God against sin. Sin makes God sick. You know, God is, is you, you find throughout Old and New Testament how sin, God views sin. So when you think about forgiveness, what does it do? Forgiveness erases the guilt from God's memory. It is as if that this sin has never even taken place. Some people say to be justified, justification is just as if I had never even sinned. So what does sin do? It, it's It's... It is erasing that guilt from God's memory. There can be no guilt or condemnation. Why? Because God sees the believer as having never sinned. Are you with me tonight? One of the two elements that needs to be there for us to be justified, for us to be righteous in the sight of God, is the forgiveness of sins. Listen, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's no spiritual bar of soap. You can attend church all your life. You can be a Baptist. Your granddaddy was a Baptist preacher. You know, you can know scripture. 
but your sins must be forgiven. That's one of the two elements. Look at the second one tonight. And we're going to spend a little bit on this. The imputation of Christ's righteousness. The imputation of Christ's righteousness. And along with that comes the restoration of His favor. See, with the imputation of His righteousness comes the favor of God back into our lives. Now, some of you may or may not understand this word imputation. I'm going to get into that so that we all understand what the Bible has to say about it. Because see, the forgiven, justified sinner is not at all like the prisoner that has been set free, that has got out of prison, that has been released from his cell, who paid his debt to society. That's not what imputation is. Justification is more than acquittal. It is, listen to this, it is placing of the believer back into the same standing that he enjoyed before the fall. We all know what happened in the garden, right? Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death, separation from God, Death by sin. And so death, separation, passed upon all men. Why? Because all have sinned. And I might have started with Adam. We have that Adamic nature. We all are sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That there is none righteous, no, not one. So when you think about that, there needs to be a way, and God has made it possible that we can be justified or we can be placed back into the same standing that mankind enjoyed before the fall. Now, listen, there's not a lot. It's a little sliver in your Bible of the relationship, the communion that Adam had with God before the sin. I mean, you know, I wish there was more, but there's just not. But every time I read it, I, I just get this picture in my mind about the sweet communion, the fellowship. Can you imagine those, those times that Adam spent with God? But sin changed it all. And I know in my life, because we're born in sin. But I'll tell you what, when Jesus came into my heart, everything changed. That, that time of of a fellowship is now in my life. Why? How is that possible? Through the imputation of Christ. His righteousness, the very word impute means this, to set something to someone's account. To set something to someone's account. Now, if you look at our lives, you know what we are. We're poor, wretched, and miserable, aren't we? <laughs> look, here's an illustration here. Forgot I put this in here, but Notice, our sin and guilt is placed on him, and his righteousness is placed on us. Folks, that's God's grace. That's God's favor in our lives to impute. The biblical definition of imputation, it's kind of a neat word. It's actually a legal term. It's used in a couple different ways in the Bible. Let me give you a couple of these ways that this word is used. One of them is, I think I gave you a couple of verses here. See those in the book of Philemon there in your notes? I don't know if you remember this story, but Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon, 
And, and as he sends him there, Philippian, uh, Philemon chapter 1, verse 17, look at this. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him, talking about Onesimus, receive him as myself, receive him like you'd receive me. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on my account. That's imputation. That, that's a beautiful picture here where he says, put that on my account. When, when a, a, a bride and a groom stand at an altar and, 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 and they say to each other, the, the groom says to the bride, maybe you remember these words, with all my worldly goods to thee I endow. What, what, what is he saying to her? He's talking about imputation. He's placing uh, to the bride's account all of his property. I mean, I don't know if she had anything or not. Uh, in Bible days, the, the, a lot of times, the, the bride really didn't have much because it all belonged to her daddy. But he says, look, everything that's mine. I don't understand some of these couples that get married, and it's like he has his account, she has her account. No, when we got married, what was mine was hers, and what was hers was mine. And I'm going to tell you right now, I got the better end of that. Because she had, and I didn't. But you think about this matter of imputation, it is placing to our account. The very verb, imputation, what does it mean? It means, it's, it's a neat word, it means legizomai. We get, we get a couple different of our English words from that, but this particular Greek verb that, that we see it translated as the word imputation, it's used 40 times in the New Testament, 10 of those times right here in Romans chapter number 4. And in Romans chapter number 4, it's translated three, by three different words. Now again, they didn't change the word of God. There's a reason for each one of these words. But if you look in verse 3 and verse 5, you see the word counted. That's the word there, imputation. In verse 4 and verse 10, you see the word reckoned. That's another word there that is synonymous with the imputation. And then, of course, in verse 6, 8, 11, 22... 23 and 24, you actually see the word imputed. They oftentimes call Romans chapter number 4 the great imputation chapter. So when you see this here, it's talking about this matter of to set something or place something to one's account. Everybody with me so far? I told you it was going to be a little bit more of a teaching lesson. Now, we're thinking about legizomai. We're thinking about this matter of imputation. Let me give you, because in their... In your Bible, and, and he's already got the slide up there, there's three imputations in the Word of God. Three different kinds. Now, the first one that you see there in your notes, Romans 5, 12, listen to this. It's where God imputes to us, God imputes to us what actually belongs to us in the first place. You say, what are you talking about? God imputing, God... God placing on our account what actually belongs to us in the first place. Here it is, Romans 5, 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, legitimai, for that all have sinned. Death is a part of our spiritual heritage, the heritage that we have from Adam. Death has been, watch this, here's the word, reckoned to our account. You see, it's appointed unto man once to die. Nobody's going to live forever. We're either going to step through death's door or the Lord's going to come back and rapture us out. 
So when you look at this word, Adam's sin, according to the word of God, Adam's sin was not his alone. That sin was placed on everyone's account. That's the first one that you see there. Adam's sin is placed on man. Everybody see that on the illustration up there. But look at the second type of imputation in the word of God. And notice it is in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Because in this one, it is God the Father imputing to Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that which does not belong to him. Everybody see it there? Man's sin was placed on Jesus. It was placed on his account. 2 Corinthians, look in your notes, 521, part of that verse. For he, and the he there is God, for he hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. You know what that means? He placed our sin on his son. That's imputation. It, it doesn't, as you look at this, the Bible, this is a great concept of substitution. Remember in the Old Testament in Genesis 22 where Abraham took his son, they went up to Mount Moriah, and they were there, and he says, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And you remember the Bible says that they looked and overcaught in the, 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 the thicket was a, a ram, and they offered up in the stead of his son. Jesus took our place. That's imputation. Are you with me tonight? This, this is a great chapter. I mean, folks, I'm going to tell you something. If you get a hold of this, this matter here of a concept of substitution, Christ died for our sins. He didn't die for his. He was sinless. Look what it says in Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for whose transgression? Our he was bruised for whose iniquities? Ours. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes, we were healed. Because of what Jesus did. Look, it does not say that Christ became a sinner. Don't ever let somebody get you, try to cause you to believe that. Because Jesus never became a sinner. What it states is that sin was set to his account. It was imputed to him that was not his, it was our sin. So the second kind of imputation is not Adam's sin to mankind as a whole, it's man's sin that was placed on Jesus, God's own dear son. But look at the third kind. The third kind is where God imputes, this is beautiful, to the, to the sinner, the righteousness of his own dear son. In other words, God is crediting to us as sinners what is not actually ours. We don't deserve it. You know what we deserve? Tell me what we deserve. We deserve hell. But look at what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the last part of that verse. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's how that happens. The actual perfect righteousness of God it is credited to our account. So that when God looks at us, when God looks at Dane Keeley, and when God looks at Bill Flynn, and God looks at Robert Negron, God doesn't see us as we are, which is sinners. He sees the righteousness of his own dear son that has been placed on our account. You see, it's a wonderful thing to be a child of God. His righteousness 
being credited to our ledger. You know, we had nothing in the bank, but because of Jesus, guess what? We're rich. <laughs> we're heirs. We're joint heirs with Jesus. I mean, folks, you ought to be excited about that tonight. This is known as imputed righteousness or justification. So the first question, good question. Some people asked this question, and the question was, how was Abraham saved? Well, there it is, through imputation. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ the same way we are saved. Look at question number two, our letter B. Here's the next question. When was Abraham saved? That's a valid question. Now, again, if you talk to those of the circumcision, even to this day, a lot of Jewish legalists would bring, up, bring into question that Abraham was saved because of his circumcision. That's what they'll tell you. Because of his circumcision, he was saved. But the truth is, you study the Word of God, that's not an accurate evaluation of the Scriptures. Because when you look in the Bible, look at these two verses. The first one is Genesis 15, verse 6. And the Bible says, He believed in the Lord, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. If you look at the second verse there, Genesis 17, 24, Abraham was how old? Everybody look at it. How old? 90 years old and nine. He's 99 years old when he was what? When he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. So he was circumcised when he was 99 years old. Now, folks, look, honestly, I'm going to explain this in just a second, but look at those two references. One is Genesis 15, verse 6. The other one is Genesis 17, verse 24. Numerically, chronologically, which one of those verses comes first? 15 verse 6, right? You with me? And how old was he in, verse, in chapter 17? How old? 99. When he was what? When he was circumcised, right? Now watch this. Don't miss this. Abraham in Genesis 15 was only 85 years old. That means, look at verse 6 of chapter 15. In verse 6 of chapter 15, he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So when Abraham got saved, when he was justified, when the imputation took place, how old was he? 85. And when he got circumcised, how old was he? 99. So was he saved and then circumcised or circumcised and because of that he was saved? You tell me. He was saved and then he was circumcised. So when you look at this, Genesis 15, justification has been imparted to Abraham, but in Genesis 17 he is circumcised 15 years later. I mean, circumcision did not give Abraham a just standing before God. It was not the purpose of that right, R-I-T-E. They, they misunderstand the purpose of circumcision. See, a lot of times they say, well, listen, he was saved because he was circumcised. That's not Bible. We just saw that. So look at the next question, letter C. Why was Abraham saved? Well, take your Bible, look at verse number 11. The Bible says in Romans 4.11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet 
being uncircumcised. See it there? It's right there in the Bible. He had faith before he was circumcised that he might be the father. Why, why, why is he going through the, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. What a wonderful verse in the Bible. Why was he saved? So that, according to the Bible, that he could become the father of all them that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he was saved. And this would include not only those that were circumcised, but according to this, not only the circumcised Jews, but also the uncircumcised Gentiles as well. See, circumcision, according to the word of God, was the seal of Abraham's faith, while justification was the source of his faith. Let me say that again. Circumcision was the seal of Abraham's faith, but justification is the source. How are we saved? Not by circumcision, but by faith. Faith alone. It's not faith plus circumcision. It's faith in Jesus Christ alone. So why was he saved? That he might become the father of all them that believe. So we think about Abraham's righteousness, but look at the second thing here. Look at Abraham's inheritance. Now look at verse 13, Romans 4. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, Faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. So when we look at this matter of Abraham's inheritance, notice letter A, what was Abraham promised? Well, when you, you look at these verses, here's the statement. He was promised that he would be the heir of the world. The heir of the world. Now this verse here what it represents or what it presents to us as we read Romans chapter number four, it takes us back to the Old Testament and it reminds us of something called the Abrahamic covenant because that's what God brings up here. This was something that guaranteed him that he would be the father of a great nation and that his seed would one day possess Palestine forever. The Bible says in Genesis 15, I think it's in your notes, in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, or at that time, Abram, saying unto him, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. So God makes this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant with him that he would be the heir of the entire world. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is something that you find two parties making an agreement. Now, I want to share with you because, again, this is, it, it, it filters right into our Bible understanding. There are two types of covenants. The first type of covenant that is between two parties is called a conditional covenant. Now, a conditional covenant, as defined, is where both parties, both parties, they agree to fulfill the conditions of their covenant. 
But if either party fails to meet their responsibility, the covenant is broken. Do you get that? Two parties come together, they, 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 they agree to conditions, and if one of those parties fails to meet their responsibility, the covenant is broken. That's a conditional covenant. The other kind of covenant is called an unconditional covenant. Now again, listen to this. It's an, also an agreement between two parties. The difference in the unconditional from the conditional is this. Only one of the two parties has to do something. Only one. Nothing is required from the other party. And when you find the covenants that God made, especially with the nation of Israel in the Bible, here's what you find is those covenants are not conditional covenants. They are unconditional covenants, which basically means that those covenants were not based on man, they're based on God. And God changes not. When God promises something, all of God's promises are true. Not one promise of God has ever fallen to the ground. You see, if God based it on man, can you imagine what would happen if salvation was based on man instead of based on God? We'd be lost. We'd still be bound for hell. But it's not based on man, it's based on the God-man. See, our salvation is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So when you think about this matter of what was Abraham promised, he was promised that he would be the heir of the world. But then notice the next question here, how was this promise given? How did God give this promise to him? Now the fact is, is that the promise, this is a gr another great thing that I think a lot of people miss is, that the promise that God gave to Abraham, preceded the law it came before the law by some 430 years before the law was ever given god gave this promise look at verse number 14 again the bible says for if they which are of the there it is of the law be heirs faith is made void and the promise it's good for nothing it's like having oceanfront property in Ohio. It's good for nothing. So when you look at this, look, if the heirs, H-E-I-R-S, that he mentions here, if the heirs were those that kept the law, then according to Romans chapter number four, faith would be void. Faith would be useless. It would be empty. If faith becomes void, then the promise of God becomes disannulled. And if the promise of God becomes disannulled, then we are still in our sins. And according to the Bible, we are still, of most men, miserable. Why? Because we have no hope. You see, the law was not given to us to keep in order to merit our own righteousness or salvation. Look at verse 15. Here's what the Bible says. The law works what? Wrath. That's what the law works. If you were to take time and go back over to Romans 7 in verse 7, here's what Paul writes there. He says, I had not known sin, and then later on he says this. Here's how I known sin. He says, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Here in Romans chapter number 4 in verse 15, he states, for where no law is, there's no transgression. You know, I, look, I, I, I guarantee you, most of us would love it 
if there was no speed limit signs on the roads. And guess what? The truth is, if there's no speed limit sign there, then guess what? You're not breaking the law if you're doing 120 miles an hour. But if the sign is there that says speed limit 55, and you go 75 or 80, you're transgressing, you're stepping over the line, you're breaking the law. So when you look at this passage, and we just got into Romans chapter number 4, what a great passage on imputation. It's all about Jesus. It's not about the rights or the rules of religion. Those cannot save us. Only Jesus saves. It's that simple, folks. We need to understand that salvation is by faith alone. Plus nothing and minus nothing. Let's bow our heads tonight. Lord, thank you again for the truth of the Word of God. What a great, what a great passage tonight. Romans chapter number 4. Thank you for allowing Abraham to help us to understand. Lord, we understand that there are some privileges to those that may be of Jewish descent, maybe some of those covenants that are promised to them alone, but Lord, I'm sure, I'm sure glad that salvation was not just for the Jews. I'm so glad that being a Gentile that I've had the privilege and honor to be saved, and all those here tonight, I pray, are saved by the grace of God and by faith in Christ alone. Nothing, nothing added to that. So many people today are, are in religion. Talked to a lady after the service this morning asking about having babies dedicated to the Lord. And, and although we love to do that because it's a great way for parents to, to understand the responsibility to raise those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, some people view that as salvation for that child. But a child cannot go to heaven, an adult cannot go to heaven unless they've believed. Believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's counted unto him for righteousness. Thank you for the imputation of your righteousness on our account. God, without you, we're poor, we're nothing. But with you, with you, we are a child of the King. Thank you again for helping us from your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.